everyone. Welcome to the Farm Commons podcast, where we explore timely and important legal issues and questions facing the farming community today. For community-based farms with a focus on sustainability, managing legal risks is especially important, as many innovative farm enterprises, like community-supported agriculture programs, on-farm suppers, and gardening classes, and unique arrangements for land access and employment do not fit neatly into our legal system, leading to vulnerability. But through legal education, we can cultivate greater resilience for your farm business so that you can continue to grow in ways that best support you, your relationships, and your community. At Farm Commons, we'll show you why and how. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. It's Eva here. I'm the Farmer and Partner Development Manager with Farm Commons, and we're back today to discuss legal risk management for your farm during the COVID-19 crisis. Farmers, we know you all are going through daily changes on your farms as you pivot sales and production to meet shifting demand and regulations. You've had many questions for us in the process, and our team at Farm Commons is doing our best to respond through this podcast series. Today, we're back to discuss direct payments for farmers through the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. I'm on the line with me today is our Executive Director, Rachel Armstrong, and our new staff attorney for Special Projects, Rich Levine. So, hey, Rachel. Hey, Rich. Hi. Hey, This is a fun podcast episode because all you listeners have not heard Rich before. This is his first week at Farm Commons, and we are excited to have him. Uh, Before we get into too many of the details about the direct payments program, Rich, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to Farm Commons. Well, sure. Uh, By way of background, I was born and raised in southern New Hampshire, but I spent most of my adult life living and working in Wisconsin, so I really consider myself a Wisconsin native, even though I'm talking to you today from the Valley of the Sun in Mesa, Arizona. I'm a graduate of the University of Wisconsin Law School, and it was really after law school that I started to take a real interest in sustainable agriculture and local food systems. After graduation, I spent five years working in private practice in northern Wisconsin, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to serve on the board of directors of our local food cooperative, work with a couple of up-and-coming growers cooperatives to help them get organized and get off the ground, and also to get really involved with a community organization with a focus on building resilient local food systems. From there, I went on to spend about eight years working in health policy, so I've been up to my neck in insurance law, Medicaid, and the Affordable Care Act. But when I saw a chance to come join the team of Farm Commons, it really felt to me like a chance to bring my career full circle and come back to hopefully providing some helpful information to the folks out there who are doing the work on the ground to build the types of food systems that I want to be part of. So it's great to be here and I'm really excited to be delivering my first Farm Commons podcast. And we are super excited to have you. Um, Wisconsin, sometimes I call it the greatest state in the union. I just love it, even though I am a Minnesota native. My other phrase though, is that uh, although I was born and raised in Minnesota, I grew up in Wisconsin. That's where, I, that's where I moved to go to University of Wisconsin-Madison at 18 and changed my life. So, good stuff. Uh, you have, uh, have been diving into the direct payments program and doing some research on that program. Um, those rules came out this week. So that's what we're going to talk more about today. 
Farm Commons serves an audience that does a lot of direct-to-consumer sales, um, organic producers. We love this audience. And one of the great things, one of the many great things about uh, farming and selling food in this way is that the folks we work with generally get a higher price for their product. It has more value in the marketplace, either because it's produced organically, it's farm identified, any of these things. When the direct payments program was first announced, we heard that it would cover actual losses. And if you could see me, I got the finger quotes, actual losses. So we thought, well, great. Does that mean that farmers who sell into high value markets like we serve, are they going to have their actual losses covered? Are they going to receive compensation that reflects the greater value of their product? Break it to us, Rich, does it? Well, unfortunately, the short answer to that is probably no. Depending on what type of crops you produce, the payment rate through this program is going to be based either on the averages of futures trading prices roughly during the first quarter of this year, or the average market sale prices during the first quarter of this year. And those averages are based on nationwide averages, so they don't account for regional price differences you might see in different crop types. And they also average the price between organic and non-organic produce. So you wouldn't see it accounting for you know, the higher market value that you might get for organic or other sort of value-added products. That's not surprising, I, you know, I hazard to guess, but it is still really disappointing. Um, you know, the, val the, the value of the product that our, that our local marketers you know, receive um, those who have sold, sold into restaurants and things like that, uh, it's, it's, it's devastating because it's, there's huge losses. And pricing on you know, futures and things like that is not going to not gonna go too far. It really is unfortunately kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. So no matter what your production model is, whatever repayment rate you're eligible for, it's going to look the same across the board. Sure, sure, okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about eligibility. So when, when COVID-19 first, first built up some steam in the United States, um, all of a sudden restaurants shut down. That was, that was one of the first things that happened to try to limit the spread. Now, what happened then is we had, uh, we had farmers with, uh, with product that they had uh, put into the stream of commerce right at that time. Then, you know, it might have gotten stuck at a packing house or, it, you know, at a distributor or something like that, um, right as supply chains were really collapsing. Um, I'm sure some of that product uh, went bad, wasn't able to be sold. Um, tell me about how those folks might be eligible for, for direct payments and how they're going to benefit. It really depends kind of on the, uh, once again, on the types of crops you're producing. Now, if you're producing what they're calling non-specialty crops here, basically your grain crops, your eligibility for a payment is going to be based on how much product you had on farm as of January 15th. So what happened to it after that really isn't going to affect your payment rate. On the other hand, if you're producing the specialty crops, basically your fruits and vegetables, it really makes a difference. Well, there's two different programs here. There's one to compensate for losses that resulted from just general decrease in sales prices for certain types of items. There's another one that can compensate for spoiled crops, but only if they left the farm and then spoiled afterwards because you couldn't get them to market. 
I suspect for a lot of people, there's going to be kind of a combination of some of these things coming into play. You may be looking at potentially three different payment streams that are going to be based on different conditions. What you either had on the farm, what you actually sold, or what you tried to sell and got off farm and couldn't get to market. So it's hard to say uh, whether one person's gonna be in a better position than another. I think it's gonna, it's gonna be very specific to individual farming operations and what your circumstances look like. This sounds a little bit uh, complicated in terms of the paperwork, documenting each of those things, you know, poundage, things like that. Uh, can you give us a summary of the paperwork and documentation that might need to be submitted? Sure, yes, yeah, certainly in addition to the application itself. I expect that everybody who does apply for these funds is going to have to provide some documentation verifying either their production or their sales volume or maybe both, either for the full year of 2019 or for the first quarter of this year, again, depending on what types of crops you produce. Uh, I think some, maybe even most applicants, should probably be prepared to provide documentation of their income for the 2016, 2017, and 2018 tax years because there is an income eligibility limit for these payments. And then on top of that, the rule itself identifies at least five different documents that have to be submitted if they're applicable to your operations. And it appears to me that if you are operating as a business entity, like an LLC or a corporation, you are more likely to have to fill out more of those forms. That makes sense. I, I took a quick look at some of these forms myself, um, and I, I read in some of the research that you did that uh, a, a little thing called the farm plan um, might be required. So I went to look up what Farm Service Agency, what their farm plan is, uh, farm operating plan. Um, and I'll admit, I'm, I'm less familiar with FSA documentation because like many, many specialty crop growers or direct-to-consumer producers, uh, we don't intersect with Farm Service Agency as much. Uh, you know, there's, there's no, you know, official limitation on that. It's just that, um, you know, the trajectory of history and the, and the types of programs available, it just um, that relationship is, is not as strong. So I went to look up some of these, these forms, um, and I do think that, that there will be some paperwork burden um, that many of our small and direct-to-consumer growers will, will experience here uh, because it asks for, you know, equipment values, um, capital contributions, um, you know, uh, where's, your, where's your labor coming from, um, you know, percentage that's hired, percent that's yourself, uh, what are your management structures. None of this is unreasonable. That's all good business information um, that, uh, that many farms will have, but the amount of time to put it into FSA's forms, um, to understand uh, their language, I think that that learning curve might be, might be steep for some of our small and direct-to-consumer growers. And so that was, that was a concern I definitely had. You know, I think that's a real possibility, but one thing people should be aware of is you're not required to submit this documentation necessarily at the same time as the application. The rule does give you 60 days after the date of application to get that supplemental documentation in, but given that this is a first come first served funding pool, I think it's probably something that anybody interested is going to want to get on top of 
as soon as you can, because if you drag your feet on this, uh, the well might run dry before your application gets processed. That makes sense. So I think the action step for, for producers that are thinking about this is to get in touch with FSA right away, uh, download the forms from FSA's uh, direct payments uh, website and start working their way through it. They may need to set up some time with an accountant or a tax preparer that they might utilize for help um, making sure that they are completing these forms um, as required. Let's see, I have one more question actually um, about, uh, about how the, pro the program works for different types of producers. These are the spring months that we've been experiencing. When I think about spring, I think about um, our nursery crop producers, those who grow starts. I think about those who grow flowers. We had uh, Easter, graduations, Mother's Day, um, all of the cut flowers that we normally utilize at this time. When I think about uh, fruits and vegetables in a spring season, I'm thinking rhubarb, um, it, you know, foraged morel mushrooms, ramps, those sorts of things. And I'm also seeing so much loss there. Those sorts of, you know, fancy items, they, they tend to go to our restaurant markets. And with, uh, with social distancing, um, we just haven't had the occasion to utilize these flowers. You know, my heart goes out to these kinds of growers and the losses that they're experiencing. Is there any chance that there is anything for them in this program? Well, that again looks like a maybe. And I, to back up a step, I think really, you know, one of the threshold questions you're going to want to be looking into if you're thinking about applying for these funds is, am I producing an eligible crop type in the first place? If we look at the list of, for example, specialty crops that are eligible for the off-market spoilage payments, it's, it's a significantly longer list than the types of crops that are eligible for payments due to decreased sale prices. There are charts in the rule itself, so if you can get a hold of the rule, you can look at that chart and see, do I have a crop type that's eligible for the spoilage payments? Do I have one that's eligible for the sales loss payments? Now the rule itself, specify, it, as it stands right now, it only applies to the specific crop types that are identified in the language of the rule. And right now, that does not include things like cut flowers or foraged products. It does, however, say that the Farm Service Agency is required to issue an additional notice of funding. And that notice of funding can include things like cut flowers or aquaculture products or a couple of examples they give in the text of the rule. Unfortunately, the rule doesn't provide any kind of timeline for when that additional funding announcement is supposed to be released. So when that comes out, what it will include and whether at that point in time there will actually be any money left in the pot are all a big question mark right now. Sure, sure. So I see a number of different things that producers are going to have to do to try to move forward with this program. They're going to have to see if, they are, if, they're, if their crop type um, is eligible. They're going to have to assess if the compensation that they uh, can receive based on those futures prices and things like that, if that compensation is even going to be worth it. In order to assess that, they're going to have to look at the paperwork required and see how easy it's going to be for them to complete all of, all of the paperwork. 
but let's say that farmers go through that process and they find, okay, the crops I grew were eligible and sure this money, you know, might not be what I would really hope for, but it's worth it. The paperwork isn't too bad. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Let's say they uh, get an appointment with FSA and work through the process. When, when could they expect a check? Well, that is another fine question. The uh, application period officially opens May 26. According to the rule, it extends through August 28th. But all it says in terms of the time frame for actually issuing payments is that payments are expected to be issued once applications are processed, which doesn't leave us with a whole lot of information to help mark our calendars. Um, and it really gets a little more complicated too in the fact that there probably are going to be two different payment rounds here. The first round of payments, what they're calling initial payments, are not going to be for the full amount that any applicant is eligible to receive under this program. It's going to be for 80% of that total amount. And then once they've issued all those initial payments, they have to go back, see what's left in the pool, and then figure out if they can issue a second round of payments that either uh, meets the total amount that everybody's eligible for, or if not, is reduced in some way and hopefully uh, more or less divided in an equitable fashion. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I think that's enough of a preview on the direct payments program. It's probably not the news that a lot of us were hoping for, but it is, it is good to know. It's good to know where we're at with this program and what our opportunities are and how we're going to move forward. So we'll pass it back to you from here, Eva. Great. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Rich, for um, that breakdown of uh, the maybes surrounding this program. And we'll know much more once the program opens, as Rich said, on Tuesday, May 26. Um, that's this coming Tuesday. And we will be um, addressing all of these questions and more during a webinar on the following day. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, May 27th at 3 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Eastern. And um, uh, we'll be presenting presenting on uh, the USDA's direct payments program, uh, focusing on application and payment details, emphasizing uh, direct-to-consumer and alternative producers. So make sure, um, if you are one of those producers, that you join us this coming Wednesday. Um, and so a couple more plugs before we close out here. Um, we are so excited to have recently launched a new newsletter that we are um, very excited to be calling The Sprout. Uh, it is um, a great compilation of what is sprouting in farm law, uh, what we have going on at Farm Commons, new projects, new research, COVID updates, but also farm law news nationwide that we are keeping tabs on and distilling for you so that you can um, get updated in one one very browsable email. So we're sending that out on a semi-regular basis right now with COVID things. It's um, could be a couple of weeks, um, but we're, we'll be moving to a, a more um, quarterly basis or, or monthly. Um, so if you want to sign up for that, just go to our website, www.farmcommons.org, and scroll to the bottom and click sign up for newsletter. Um, and while you're also down there, we invite you to be a part of protecting the legacies of thousands of farmers across the United States with a donation to support our legal education work here at Farm Commons, um, if you have the means. And your gift really matters uh, now more than ever. All donations will be matched up to $5,000, helping us to meet the incredibly urgent need for quality legal information as farms navigate COVID-19. 
Um, so again, at the bottom of the page, just nearby where you can sign up for our newsletter, there is a link to make a donation that will take you to our PayPal page. And we appreciate your time and consideration. So thanks everyone for tuning in and um, we will hopefully see you guys on the webinar on Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Commons podcast. For more information on what you just heard, as well as a variety of farm law guides, models, checklists, flowcharts, and more, visit our website at farmcommons.org. You can also email us at info at farmcommons.org if you have any questions or comments about this podcast or any of our online materials. Thanks everyone for listening, and keep on growing.